The text that we consider this evening is Genesis 15, verses 7 through 21. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, one is tempted to call what Abram experienced here in Genesis 15, part of it at least, a nightmare. When the horror of great darkness, the terror descended upon him in that deep sleep that he had. And whatever it's called, it's evident that Abram did not know what he was getting into when he asked God the question in verse 8, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? Lord God, make me sure that this promise that you have given to me Make it sure to me and assure me that I shall indeed inherit it and possess it. You recall earlier in Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6, that Abram had been wondering about the seed that God had promised him. And up until that point, there was no seed, and Abram naturally wondered about the seed. And he asked God, what about this seed? I don't have a seed. You promised a seed. And God, condescending to Abram, assures Abram of the promise of his seed. And Abram believes God, and it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now, in verses 7 through 21, the promise in view is what God says in verse 7, the promise of the land, that God would give Abram the land to inherit it. And you see the idea of the land recurring through these verses. Abram at this point, is an old man. The land is full of heathen. You can understand his question, uh, the rise of his question to God, Lord, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it and possess it? And that's when there was this horror that we read of in verse 12, a horror of great darkness, wherein God revealed to Abram profound things, things concerning the future, things concerning his seed, things that were many years off and that would go on for hundreds of years. Darkness and smoke and fire and bondage and all of those things. At the end of which is the hope that God gives to Abram. Abram, yes, you shall inherit it. Your seed shall possess it no matter what. Now this chapter here is significant in covenant history. That's what the Old Testament is. It's redemptive. It's covenant history, the unfolding of covenant history. And in Genesis 15 already, we find profound truths. We learn profound truths concerning the nature and the character of God's covenant with us. Even as we heard already this morning from Galatians and Genesis chapter 17, God's covenant, already in Genesis 15, God makes this powerful revelation of the nature and character of his covenant. And remember again that Abram is the father of us all. So that the covenant that God establishes with Abram and the promises that God gives to Abram have to do with us. And what we learn about the covenant with Abram, we learn about God's covenant with us. And they are wonderful truths that come out of this chapter. The truths that God's covenant is established unconditionally and unilaterally. The truths that God's covenant is maintained and realized, not by God and man, but by God alone, who alone passes through the pieces of the animals. 
What we learn in Genesis 15 is that God, the God of the covenant, takes sole responsibility for his covenant in its establishment and in its maintenance and in its realization and its perfection. And so we're going to consider so many of these blessed truths regarding God's covenant here in Genesis 15, verses 7 through 21, under the theme, covenant promise confirmed by God. Covenant promise confirmed by God. Noticing in the first place that this was a covenant promise. Noticing in the second place that this promise was unilaterally confirmed. And noticing in the third place that this promise and this confirmation here is not just for the comfort of Abram. Not just for the comfort of the seed of Abram in the Old Testament, although truly so. But that this confirmation is for the church's comfort of all ages. The promise here in Genesis 15, 7 through 21, is a covenant promise. And the first thing that we want to consider is what the promise is. And the promise, as we already mentioned in the introduction, is the promise that Abram would inherit and possess the land of Canaan. You find that promise in verse 7. God says, Abram, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And it's about that promise that Abram asks in verse 8, Lord, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? You find the promise again in verse 18. God says, God makes a covenant with Abram saying, unto thy seed have I given this land. Now this promise of the land of Canaan, this is not the first time that God told Abram that. You find it already in Genesis 12, verse 7, where God says, To Abram, unto thy seed will I give this land. You find the promise repeated in chapter 13, verse 15, where God says, For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. Here it is again now, in Genesis 15. Now we have not, as yet in the series, spent much time with that land promise. But we ought to. Because that promise is repeated throughout the Old Testament. It's one of the themes that works through the Old Testament, God realizing this promise. So that, on the one hand, and it's also important to consider what this promise means in its essence, because this promise is frequently misconstrued in our own day and misunderstood. So what is the promise? Historically, God promised Abram and his seed the land of Canaan. That becomes clear from Genesis 15, verse 18. God marks out the land as the land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. And now we're all somewhat familiar with the classic Old Testament map. You have the Egypt down low, you have the Sea of Galilee, you have the Euphrates River, the land of Canaan. We all have a pretty good idea for what that land includes. In verses 19 through 21, God describes the land according to the current inhabitants of the land. All of these different groups of Canaanites that were at that time dominating the land of Canaan. God says, this land I will give to you and I will give to your seed. You will inherit it, your seed will possess it. Historically now, the fulfillment of that promise, historically, typically, was when God, in the deep way of Egypt, Exodus, redemption, wilderness wanderings, Joshua, 
when God gave Israel to possess the land at the, um, with Joshua at the vanguard, Joshua at the helm. And you remember that history, they slaughtered the Canaanites and possessed the land. But even then, when you look at the opening of the book of Judges, you realize that even that was not complete. There were still Canaanites scattered here and there. Well, in the days of David and Solomon, that kingdom, or Israel, further possessed the inheritance that God promises Abram right here. But even then, there was something incomplete about it. Well, the ultimate fulfillment of this promise to Abram here in Genesis 15, the ultimate fulfillment is the heavenly inheritance that awaits all of God's people, whether Jew or Gentile, whether Old Testament or New Testament. To say it differently, the ultimate fulfillment awaits. And God's church, represented already by Abram, the father of believers back then, God's church today, we, we await the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of this promise, which is the new heavens and the new earth that we read about in Revelation 21. That's the, that's the end all of this promise here in Genesis 15. Now, what's the proof of that? What's the proof for that connection? We say that the land of Canaan was a type of our heavenly inheritance, that new heavens and the new earth that we will experience and enjoy in body and soul. The outstanding testimony to that is Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, the inspired writer points out that the patriarchs already Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to whom was this promise? Where, to what did their gaze stretch? What were their eyes on, ultimately? And the author, the inspired writer of the book of Hebrews, points out that already then they were looking for a better thing than the dirt and the soil of that strip of land next to the Mediterranean Sea. And the inspired writer says, but now they desire a better country that is in heavenly. So again, you see that already in the Old Testament, it was not all about the dirt and the soil and the physical and the earthly. But they already were looking far ahead into the, to the new heavens and the new earth, the heavenly inheritance. Another text that brings out the typical significance of the land of Canaan is Genesis 17 verse 8 already. It's not a small moment that God calls the land of Canaan his people's everlasting possession. Everlasting. Now we know that the Jews were not in Canaan long before they were dispossessed. And, even, even, uh, and they came back to the land of Canaan. But what's the everlasting possession? And the everlasting possession is not the soil of Canaan, but the heavenly inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth. Then you have to reckon also with the fact that God promised Abram he would inherit and possess the land of Canaan. But as we learn from Stephen's speech in Acts 7, Abram himself never owned a square foot of the land of Canaan apart from a grave that he bought for his wife, for himself, and for the patriarchs after him. The Old Testament saints had their eyes higher than dirt the dirt of this earth. Now the reason we belabor that point is in light of a teaching that is current in these days, really dispensationalism, although 
more broadly, premillennialism often falls into the, the rut of making the essence of this land promise that strip of land next to the Mediterranean Sea, the, the earthly historical land of Canaan. And so the idea goes that the ultimate fulfillment or what everyone's waiting for is not so much the new heavens and the new earth and that heavenly inheritance, but for the return of Christ who will uh, conquer the promised land and restore his kingdom on earth and have a millennial kingdom there in the land of Canaan. Well, we object to that. As we've already seen from the biblical testimony in the New and Old Testament, we object to that because such a view is too earthly a view of the Old Testament, views the promises and the prophecies in too earthly a way. But as we've seen again and again, already in the Old, although all of these promises and prophecies are clothed in Old Testament language, the essence of the promises and the prophecies has a higher heavenly substance. So that, again, or think about it from the perspective of a shell and a kernel. The promise has the, the shell of the earthly land of Canaan, but the kernel of the promise, the essence, is that Revelation 21 vision of the new heavens and the new earth, body and soul. Not to say it's not going to be physical. It's going to be, we're going to have bodies there. But it's, it's heavenly, and that's what we await one of our hermeneutical principles, and hermeneutical principle we mean principle by which we interpret the Bible, is that the New Testament is the interpreter of the Old Testament. And the New Testament teaches us very plainly that the Old Testament has a higher spiritual and heavenly meaning than the bare type and the bare earthly symbols and things like that. But the New Testament, again and again, takes these Old Testament prophecies and promises and unfolds their, their, their essence, their higher meaning. That you, see, you see that, for example, in the book of Acts. We saw it in the book of Hebrews. We'll stop there. This promise that Abram received, we share in this promise. Remember, Abram is the father of us all. And the promise that God gives to Abram here is not just for Abram, not just for the Jews, according to election, but this promise is for us as well, who are the spiritual children of Father Abraham. And again, to take the promise and to restrict it to the Jews or the physical descendants of Abraham is to cut out a huge swath of people that have every right to share in this promise, namely the church of all ages, whether that be Jew of the Old Testament, Jew of the New Testament, Gentile of the Old or Gentile of the New. The whole church shares, receives, and one day will possess this promise, which is the heavenly inheritance, the new heavens and the new earth. Now this was a covenant promise. Covenant is everywhere in Genesis chapter 15. Covenant permeates the text. And you see that in the, in the first place at verse 18. Now there's covenant before verse 18, but we're going to look at verse 18 first. And in verse 18 we read, In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now one way to understand that verse is this, as though that, that verse is now kind of the, 
the summary, the summary conclusion of all of these things that transpire earlier in Genesis 15. So that we may read it this way. So thus, in the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So that the whole chapter now is colored by covenant. You see covenant in the text in verses 9, 10, and 17, where we have this covenantal ceremony of the dividing of the animals and the passing through the pieces of the animals. That was a covenantal ceremony that Abram would have been well familiar with. And it was the custom in those days when men would make a covenant with each other, the custom for them to take animals, cut them in half, lay the, the halves of the pieces on each side of each other, and then for the men to pass through the pieces, between the pieces, confirming, ratifying the covenant that they made. God now, he condescends to adopt that symbolism for the purpose of assuring Abram of his promise and of his covenant more broadly. Now, what's the idea of covenant? And we saw that this morning in connection with infant baptism. Bond of friendship and fellowship between God and his people. But let's think about that idea of a bond. Okay, The covenant is not some cold contract, some cold bargain, some cold agreement mutually agreed upon. That's far too cold and mechanical a view of God's covenant. But it's so much higher, it's so much richer, it transcends the covenants that men would have established back in those days. God's covenant is so far above that. But God's covenant is this bond of friendship and fellowship. And that idea of bond is one of the suggested derivations of the very Hebrew word for covenant in the Old Testament. The idea of a binding, the idea of a bond. But it's a bond. God here binds himself to Abram and binds Abram to himself in covenant. And in that covenant, there is friendship and there is fellowship. There's relationship between God and his people. One of the names, so lovely a name that the Old Testament gives to Abram is the friend of God. When when Jehoshaphat appeals to God's covenant dealings with Abraham, Jehoshaphat calls Abram the friend of God. In Isaiah, God speaks to Israel and he calls them the seed of Abraham, my friend. What a lovely thing. God making friendship with his people. God saying, you are my friend. And God giving himself to his people to be their friend. There's fellowship and there's friendship. Another text, or not text, but another theme that you find in Scripture that points out the friendship aspect of God's covenant is the, are the pictures of God's covenant. And the outstanding pictures of God's covenant with his people are one marriage. God calls Israel his wife. And so in, the, in Jeremiah and Ezekiel as well, God has strong words for his wife who had committed adultery against him. But marriage now, as a picture of God's covenant, shows the relationship, the bond of friendship and fellowship. This uniting together forever in which is friendship. And then secondly, the earthly picture of 
father and child. God calls Israel my firstborn, my son. Again, you have bond there. And an earthly father experiences the closeness of that bond that he has with his children. Well, how much more God with regard to his people? There's a bond and it's friendship and it's fellowship. Now, in that covenant, in this covenant that God establishes with Abram, with Abram God promises Abram the land of Canaan. That's why we call it a covenant promise. In covenant, God promises Abram the land. God bound himself by this covenantal ceremony. He bound himself to keep his promise no matter what. Whatever it took, whatever it meant, that's the significance of that. God passing between the pieces, as we'll see later. He bound himself to fulfill the obligation that he gave himself to keep the promise to Abram. Now, the the text here teaches us significant truths regarding the nature and the character of God's covenant. And now we want to consider the character. The first thing that we want to consider is that this text teaches us that God's covenant is unilaterally established. The unilateral establishment of God's covenant with his people. Now, what does that big word unilateral mean? And it becomes clear when we consider the negative. Back in these days, it was customary for men to come together for the establishment of a covenant. Picture man A, man B, clasping hands, making a covenant. That's not unilateral, but that's bilateral. You have two sides coming together and making and ratifying this covenant. That's not what happens now in Genesis 15 with God's covenant. God does not say to Abram, Abram, let us make a covenant together. God says, Abram, I make my covenant with you. Genesis 17, God does not say, Abram, let's come together and make a covenant. God says, I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee. It's unilateral in its establishment. That's not to say there are, there are not two sides, but it's unilateral in its establishment. Not man and God coming together, but it's God taking man into his fellowship. God embracing man in his covenant. And you see that as well from the action that God does later in the text, verse 17, God passing between the pieces. Not God and man. Not God and Abram. That would have been the customary thing if it were a human covenant. But God alone passes between the pieces. The second place, this covenant was unconditionally established with Abram. So those are two important words when it comes to our doctrine of the covenant. Unilateral in its establishment, unconditional in its establishment. God has not established his covenant with Abram on condition. It's not, Abram, I will make a covenant if. It's the Lord made a covenant with Abram that day. The Lord said, Abram, I will establish my covenant with you. Cut up those animals and God passes between them by himself. And that's the positive. God freely, graciously enters Abram into his covenant fellowship. It's pure grace. No condition, no deserving or worth or merit on Abram's part. But according to God's sovereign election, 
God graciously drafts Abram into his covenant and establishes his covenant with him. Not only is it unilateral and unconditional in its establishment, but also as regards its maintenance. What does that mean? What does maintenance mean? Negatively, God's covenant does not depend on man for its realization. That's the case with God's promises of the covenant as well. There's no dependence on man. It doesn't depend on man to keep the covenant going. It doesn't depend on man to make the promises of the covenant happen. But again, it's unilateral. It's God doing it. It's God maintaining it. It's God taking responsibility for his own covenant that he establishes with men. That comes out so clearly from ver- in verse 17 with that image of God passing between the pieces of the animals. That there is God taking sole responsibility over the covenant that he has established with Abram, saying, this is my covenant, this, these are my promises, and I will keep it, and I will maintain it no matter what. And we'll see the rich symbolism of that in the second point of the sermon. Now, as the baptism form says, whereas in all covenants there are two parts, yes, there are two parts in this covenant that God has established with us. And God calls us to our part. But don't misunderstand the part as a condition on which the covenant depends, or as though God's covenant depends on us for its maintenance and for its realization. Finally, as regards God's covenant, note that it is established over blood. Now in the book of Hebrews, you find that theme worked out. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. There's sacrifice and blood everywhere in the book of Hebrews. So is it the case here in Genesis 15. There was blood on the ground. It's remarkable that the animals that God calls Abram to divide up were animals that were, they were sacrificial animals. So you find these animals in Leviticus and the, those books in connection with sacrifice. God's covenant is not without sacrifice. And as the book of Hebrews makes very plain, the the covenant of grace that God has established with us is based on sacrifice. So that when you see blood here, what does that type, what does that show, what does that point to? And already in the Old Testament, God made it very clear to his people that for for this covenant, there must be blood. And that blood in the highest sense is the blood of the Lamb the Lord Jesus Christ, on which God's covenant is based. Now, this covenant promise that God gives to Abram, God unilaterally confirmed it. Again, that word unilateral, because that word is so important for a proper understanding of covenant. God confirmed his covenant promise to Abram in a a great way. Why? What was the occasion for this? Why this vision? Why the the, the pieces being divided. Well, remember the occasion of Genesis 15. God promised to Abram, I'm going to give you this land. Abram asks God in verse 8, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? Abram says, God, make me sure. Get rid of any doubt in my heart that 
this is mine, this inheritance and this possession. Now, as an aside, don't miss in the book of Genesis, in connection with Abraham, the freeness and the openness of God towards Abram and of Abram towards God. There's covenant. This dialogue, Abram unburdening the thoughts of his heart. When Abram doubts, where does Abram go? He goes to God and he says, God, make me sure. God speaks to Abram and Abram speaks to God. The covenant is no cold concept, but it's a warm and it's a living friendship and fellowship. Abram wanted to be sure. Now that question that he asks in verse 8 was not asked in unbelief. When Zacharias in the temple uh, falters before the announcement of the angel regarding John, that was asked, the sign was asked in unbelief. And as a chastisement, Zacharias was not able to speak. But this is not asked in unbelief. This is a sign and assurance that Abram asks of the sort that Gideon asked when God called Gideon. And God came with several signs to confirm and assure Gideon. Think about it as, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Which shows us that mighty hero of faith that Abram was. Abram was a man subject to like uh, weaknesses and passions as we are. And Abram himself had that battle and even that struggle of faith to believe these tremendous promises of God. So God told Abram, Take me and a heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Verse 10, Abram took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided he not. Abram knew exactly what was about to happen. This was not the first time Abram had heard of the practice of dividing up animals. Interestingly, we read about these fowls in verse 11. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So what is that? What's the symbolism there? Well, those fowls, think vultures, birds of prey, smelled the blood and were coming in to pick and chew at those animals that Abram had divided on the ground. So we've seen vultures circling around in the air, these big birds coming in uh, for food and to eat and to devour. But what does it mean? And there is good reason to understand those birds. And even when you look at other places in Scripture where these vultures, these birds of prey are mentioned, as enemies of God's covenant and as those who would threaten and make attacks upon God's covenant people, even the inheritance. And so Abram here drives them away, expressing the calling to fight against the enemy, the calling to fight the good fight of faith, driving back these vultures that were trying to get in the way, trying to pick and chew at these um, animals that had great significance in this covenantal ceremony. The sun was going down. We read that in verse 12. And when the sun was going down, it was getting darker and darker. Abram had just driven away the birds. The sun is setting. And as the sun is setting, a deep sleep falls upon Abram. And a low and horror of great darkness fell upon him. That's what we are inclined to call a nightmare. A ter- terrors 
That's the idea of that word. It was terrifying. There were horrors. The darkness was great in this sleep, in this dream that Abram had. Think about Abram now tossing and turning in his sleep as these things transpire in front of him and God reveals to Abram these things that were chilling in a sense, horrifying as regards Abram's seed. What did God reveal to him? Dark things, painful things. Let's read those verses together, verses 12 through 16. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he, that is God, said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. The first thing God reveals to Abram in that terrifying horror is that his seed would be in bondage to the Egyptians for 400 years. Already now, God reveals that to Abram. That's the nation that Israel would be a stranger in, the nation that Israel would serve, the nation that would afflict Israel for 400 years, Egypt, the Egyptians. And the horror and the terror and the darkness impresses upon Abram the horror of Egypt and the terror that that would be for Abram's seed in Egypt for 400 years. So not only does Abram know for a surety that his seed are going to be strangers in that land, but already now in this dream he is experiencing the very darkness that his seed were going to experience when they went down into Egypt. It would be affliction, it would be burden, it would be oppression, there would be cries, there would be groans, there would be weariness, there would be blood. That's what was coming. But God also gives hope to Abram in this vision and in this dream. And at the end of that dark, dark tunnel, there is this bright light that shines. God says in verse 14, And for that nation, also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great substance. God was going to come for his people. God was going to judge and punish the Egyptians for what they were doing to his people. God was going to redeem Israel and bring them out of that darkness. And we're also told in that vision that as regards Abram, Abram would die in peace in a good old age. Now we're also in this vision given the reason that God suspends, as it were, or at least postpones the possession of the promised land. And we're given that in verse, verse 16. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. God was intending to punish the Amorites. And Amorites there is really the broad heading for all of the Canaanite tribes that were inhabiting the land of Canaan at that point. Wicked tribes. Den of iniquity, lawlessness, the Canaanites. And God was going to punish them for their sins, but the cup of iniquity was not full. They were not ripe for judgment. So that while Israel is in Egypt, that cup is filling up. And at the appointed time, God would cause Israel to possess the land 
through the judgment, not only of the Egyptians, but through the judgment of the Canaanites. That's how they would inherit the land. Now one question that is worth considering is why would God tell Abram these things? Why would Abram ask God this? God, make me sure. Whereby shall I know that I shall inherit the land of Canaan? Why in this vision now does God reveal all of these things regarding his seed, Egypt, bondage, deliverance, Canaanites? And the answer is that Abram, or God was preparing Abram and his seed in advance, warning them in advance, this is what's coming your way. He was telling them about the, the affliction, the very thing that for an Israelite would seem to pose the greatest obstacle in the way of God realizing this promise. The greatest obstacle that would be presented before Abram's seed for their ever entering into and possessing the land was Egypt and the bondage there. So God now in advance is saying, yes, Abram, it's going to be this dark, it's going to be this hard, but no matter what, be assured that I will keep my promise, I will bring your seed back here to Canaan, and they shall inherit and possess the land. And that promise, this vision would have been passed down from generation to generation as the custom was in those days with regard to God's revelation. The sun went down even more. Things got even darker. That's when God confirmed this promise unilaterally. Of a sudden, there was this appearance that we read of in verse 17. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. Significant portion of Holy Scripture. What's the symbolism here? What's the symbolism of this smoking furnace and this burning lamp that passes between both pieces? God passed between those pieces and God alone passed under the form, under the symbol of the smoking or the burning furnace and the blazing lamp or the blazing torch. One way we might want to visualize it is this this fire pot, as it's rendered in other translations, with smoke billowing out of it, this fire, but then also the light emerging and blazing forth from that pot, now passing through those pieces, the smoke and the fire and the light billowing everywhere. That's what Abram saw. Now, what is the symbolism there? Well, when you think smoke and fire, what do you think of? And one of the things you think of right away is judgment and wrath. And from that perspective, you have here the symbol of God coming in judgment and coming in wrath against Israel's enemies, coming for judgment for enemies and for the salvation and the rescue and the light of God's people Israel. Judgment on the one hand, through judgment, deliverance and rescue. You could also look at that as God's presence clothed now in these symbols of fire and light and smoke, even as God led his people through the, through the wilderness with the pillar of um, fire by night and the pillar of light by day, pillar of cloud. But what we want to look at especially is the action that God does here. The covenant action of God passing through these pieces by himself.
When men made covenants with each other, it was customary, as we said, for them to pass between, for both of them, to pass between the pieces of the animal. And what they were expressing by that was nothing less than accepting the punishment for all covenant violation in case they should break covenant and fail in their covenant obligation. The men passing through the pieces of the animals were essentially saying, so be to me, like as to these animals here cut in half on each side of me, if I break covenant and if I fail in my obligation to keep what I have promised. Now God passes through the pieces by himself. And now God condescends to Abram to assure him and adopts that symbolism in order to show Abram how sure and how certain it is that Abram shall inherit and possess the land. That's how much I mean it, Abram. God pledging his faithfulness to Abram by passing through the pieces alone, unilaterally confirmed. God taking responsibility for his covenant and for his covenant promise no matter what. Not Abram and God. Not these things are up to God and Abram. But God alone. Because God alone shall maintain and shall realize his covenant promise. Now these principles, this principle here of the passing between the pieces, that's a principle with regard to God's covenant of grace that he has established with us. And the principle is that God has taken upon himself responsibility for his covenant that he he has made with us. Responsibility to keep his covenant, to maintain his covenant, and to make good on every promise that he has given us in covenant. But Then we ask the question, what about covenant violation? What about covenant transgression? The reason we ask that question is not to, to say that that would come from the side of God. God never violates his covenant. God never transgresses what he has sworn. God never breaks covenant. God always makes good and keeps his covenant and his promises. But what about the violations and the transgressions of God's covenant that come from our side? And of those, there are plenty. Even as there were so many for Israel herself. She violated God's covenant again and again turned her back on God and went after idols. God rebuked her. God chastised her. That was transgression. That was covenant violation. What about that? Because God's book of the covenant in the Old Testament made very clear what covenant violation, what covenant transgression deserves. And it deserves the covenant curse that is recorded in the pages of the Old Testament. Now if both of us That is, if Israel and God pass between those pieces, or if in God's covenant with us, he made the both of us pass between those pieces, not just God, but we with him, then we would have died a thousand deaths because of our covenant transgressions. But it's not so. God does not put on us and punish us with the covenant curse. And even though God chastised his people sorely, God always redeemed them and brought them back unto himself. The significance of this covenant action of passing between the pieces alone is that God assumes to himself 
the responsibility to suffer the covenant curse for our covenant transgressions. That is, God does not put it on Abram. He does not put it on Israel, but God assumes to himself to suffer the the consequences for that violation. So that God expresses here by passing between these pieces, let the curse fall on me. Let the accursed death fall on me for the sake of my covenant with you. If to keep my covenant and if to maintain my covenant means my death, God passes through the pieces alone. Now we, we begin to see the, the richness of this because that's what happened. The covenant curse fell on God in his son Jesus Christ according to the flesh. It happened. Even as God passed between the pieces already then in the Old Testament, the curse fell on the Lord Jesus Christ, the head and mediator and surety of God's covenant with us. That's the teaching of the, the apostle in Galatians, chapter, in Galatians 3. God sent his son Jesus Christ. God made flesh to redeem them that were under the law who redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By being made a curse for us. So that he, as our surety, as the one who assumed responsibility for us in this covenant, and took responsibility over us, when that meant suffering the covenant curse, Jesus gave his life to the accursed death on the cross. That's what being a surety meant. It meant dying our death. It meant taking upon himself our covenant guilt and dying the accursed covenant curse. God alone passed between those pieces and God alone did what it took to maintain and keep his covenant of grace with us when we violated his covenant by our covenant sins. It's in that basis, the basis of the blood of the Lord, that our covenant, God's covenant with us, is built. Book of Hebrews, blood, the blood of Christ, on which God's covenant and on which God's covenant promises are rendered sure and certain, guaranteed for God's covenant people. Now you can imagine how comforting this was for Abram. Not without terror, as we've already seen, but you can be sure that Abram woke up from that dream assured in his heart, without a doubt that God indeed would make good on his promises. Now that would not only be comfort for Abram at the time, but it would be comfort for Abram as well in in the days following in his life. You wonder if Abram remembered this nightmare, if we want to call it that, in the days ahead. If Abram, maybe sitting outside his tent, would remember that time when God gave him this vision, that at the first, turned him over in his sleep for fright. But then Abram would remember that God passed between those pieces and that God's promise was sure. This would be the comfort for God's people Israel throughout their history, but especially now for their history in Egypt. There were dark times ahead for Abram's seed. They knew that. God told them in advance. And one day, sure enough, they were in Egypt and they were experiencing the very thing that God said would happen. 
but they had comfort. You find the idea of Genesis 15 passed down from generation to generation. God told Jacob when Jacob was about to follow Joseph into Egypt with his company, God promised Jacob, I will surely bring thee out again. And there you have God repeating his promise that he makes here already to Abram. You find in the book of Genesis, Jacob telling Joseph, Joseph, God shall surely bring you out of here. You find Joseph giving commandment to his brothers on his deathbed. Don't forget my bones when God brings you out of here because God will surely bring you back to the land of Canaan. And that was a a comfort for God's people. And when they groaned and when they cried, read the book of Exodus in the land of Egypt, they prayed to God, they pled God's covenant promises, God heard them and God acted in a most powerful way as this smoking furnace and as this burning land. But this is not only the comfort of Abram and for Israel of old, but this is the comfort of the church throughout the ages. Specifically, the comfort that God's covenant promise is sure. Sealed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Because even as there were so many dark times for Israel, first Egypt, then Babylon, then the intertestamentary period, darkness again and again and again, there was always light. God always came through. And God always shone his light when for Israel it was only darkness. And that's the case for the church as well. Because the Bible makes very clear the kind of darkness that is headed our way. There have been dark times in the history of the church in the past. Think about the times prior to the Reformation. Then what happened? Out of the darkness, light. Well, even for the church of the new, uh, uh, for, for us today, living in these end times, the darkness, the clouds gather. But out of the darkness, there's light. And just like Abram and Israel had that vision, that glorious vision of the smoking furnace passing between the pieces, God has committed that to us as well. Put that revelation in our hands now in Genesis 15 for our comfort. And if ever we're prone to doubt that we will be there at that heavenly inheritance, and that one day we shall inherit and possess that new heavens and that new earth, when the persecution grows fierce, When the sorrows and the trials are many for God's people, remember this vision of God passing between the pieces and let that dispel all doubt in your heart. God passed through those pieces alone. God took upon himself our curse in his son, Jesus Christ. And if he has given us his son, shall he not give unto us all things? Romans chapter 8. Maybe we ask with Abram, Lord, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And God says, look at me passing between these pieces by myself. Whereby shall I know? Because of that, because of Christ. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank thee for thy word and bless thy word unto our hearts. Purge all doubt away as regards the heavenly rest which thou hast promised us. Make us to be faithful, to strive and to fight as we sojourn here below. But fill our hearts with the blessed, unshakable assurance that it shall be ours in full one day and that we with Abram and Isaac and Jacob and thy people of old and of new throughout the ages shall together gather before thy throne to worship thee and to worship the lamb that was slain 
to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us sing together Psalter number 289. Psalter number 289, we've sang this a couple times already, but here's Israel looking back and praising God for keeping his promise, the very promise he gave to Abram in Genesis 15. We'll start at verse 5, we'll sing, we'll sing stances 5, 11, 14, 18, and 19, and I'll say those again, stances 5, 11, 14, 18, and 19.
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen.